Well, it's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy. We'll be there in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, as Grant said, there's one in front of you. You can turn to page 673. Uh, if you have really good eyesight, it is a perfect Bible for you. If you don't, uh, read it closely. I don't know what else to tell you. Um, very grateful to be back. I was out last Sunday sick. Very grateful for our elders uh, stepping up, Pete stepping up to preach and, and fill the pulpit for me. Uh, did a great job. Uh, I am not sick anymore, but still have lingering effects of a cough. So I, I like to say, I'll, it's a lot of bark, no bites, so nothing to worry about. But with that being said, uh, I, will, I will break every good teaching model today in the sense I will probably cough. I'll probably blow my nose at some point up here. And I have cough drops in my pocket that will be popping in my uh, mouth like it's candy. So all that to be said, if that irks you, uh, just bear with me, if you will, to get through it. I'll do the best I can to silence my microphone and get through it. Uh, but I'm very grateful that I'm able to be back today. First um, Timothy will be in chapter 1 today. Uh, just to kind of tee up with where kind of set our mind and heart where we're going today a little bit uh, in the text, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever missed something important because you were distracted? If you're a parent, you should be shaking your head yes at some point. And if you don't believe you have, ask your kids because at some point they asked you to look at something and you were distracted with something else and not paying attention. Uh, as a student minister, my favorite was nearly every Super Bowl watch party we had. There was some big moment in the game that no one was watching because all they cared about was the commercials. And then the two people that watched the game were like, oh, and everyone's like, what did I miss? What did I miss? Like, oh, sorry, you're playing foosball instead. So that's what you get for sleeping on the job. Uh, we all have moments that we maybe miss were big moments because we were distracted by something. I, I want to show you a video clip uh, of, of just something that is kind of teed up to be a distraction, if you will. There, there is a new building in Las Vegas. I know, I, how dare I talk about Las Vegas up here, but it's a great illustration of what I'm talking about today, called the Sphere. Has anybody heard of this so far? Yeah, it, it's unbelievable. They have like 360 panoramic uh, screens, and, and right now they have a band called U2, which is a huge, huge band playing in concert every single night and stuff like there. And I just want you to see, how, how, just, just watch this. I, I won't say any more. Play that clip real quick. Is that not crazy right there to see that? Uh, not to call him out, I actually talked before, Brad Johnson actually went to a con, he's a huge YouTube fan, I was talking to him just before this about using this illustration, and I said, it, isn't it crazy that U2 is a huge, huge band, how long before you forgot the band was even there? Think about that, you go to see them at concert, and he said, yeah, he's like, it's amazing, it's such, you spent the whole time looking up at this screen, and you have one of the world's greatest bands sitting there, and you forget they're there. I equate it to people when I talk about when they go to, like, a football game at Dallas Cowboys Stadium and stuff. I've known people who went to watch OSU and other teams play there. I was like, how was the game? And they would be sitting right on the 50-yard line, great seats, and they said they spent the whole game doing this because they have a flat-screen TV that is 50 yards long. And that's all it is. But the whole time, even though all the action is right in front of the nose, you can't help but sit there and stare at the screen the whole time. 
It's amazing how we can get distracted by stuff like that. The lights, the glamour, what's going on, and you focus on that and miss what's right in front of your nose, what you came there in the first place. You came there to see you too, but instead, you're just watching this spectacular screen go around you. How do we go to a concert and forget the band? How does that happen? I tell you that because we're in a series right now going through 1 Timothy, and the first several weeks is called Upon This Rock. And Paul, when he writes this letter to Timothy, a young pastor at a church in Ephesus, giving him guidance about how to lead the church, he tells him about certain things of the church that need to be foundational. He's like, hey, listen, as you guys are leading, you're leading this church, don't forget this stuff. Whatever you do, make sure this is the bedrock of what you do. And last time I talked, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 3 through 11, and he talks about, uh, first thing, he says, above all, you have to guard the gospel. And everything you do, don't forget the gospel and what you do. Then the second part that he's talking about today is he then points to this. He says, as we guard the gospel, here's the other thing, we must display the gospel. I love his one commentary, he said like this, as we guard the gospel in the church, we also must celebrate the gospel in our lives. How often do we come to church and we're supposed to be telling people about the gospel and yet we get them distracted by the lights and the glamour and miss the actual story of what brought us here in the first place? We're so scared for people to see the gospel in our lives that we, that we miss celebrating what God has done for us. And people leave here going, that was a cool show. That was entertaining. That preacher really caught my attention. I enjoyed the worship and we missed the whole message. And Paul, in this letter, in this section right here, is like, listen, you guard the gospel. Listen, you, you have to celebrate the gospel, if you will. So if you have your Bibles, let's read what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. Again, if you want to steal a Bible in front of you, uh, so you don't steal it, it's a gift. You can take it if you need to. Uh, page 673. Paul says this. He says, I give thanks to Christ our Lord, who strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, uh, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and guess what? I'm the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and forever and ever. Amen. Man, what is Paul getting at? What is Paul trying to get us to see in this? As I said, he goes last week, last time we talked about talking about the importance of guarding the gospel. You can't lose this message. But, but even sometimes we can guard something and forget to elevate it as something of importance in our life and celebrate what it actually means and does. Ultimately, he says this, and I think this is a big idea. We must put the gospel on display in the church. Now, when I say gospel, it's amazing how many people I talk to and don't understand what that term means. And, and don't feel any shame in that. It, it took me until my second year of college at a Baptist school before I said, oh, I understand what this means now. Grew up in church my whole life, threw around this terminology, but I never sat and asked, what does that word mean? 
Gospel comes from a Greek word which means good news. It's the good news that God has for us about his son, Jesus Christ. It's the summarization of this entire book. It's the story that we have all sinned and fell short of God's glorious standards. And as much as we try to dig ourselves out of a hole, the more we dig, the deeper we go. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And God saw us in our mess and our situation. And in his love and divine providence, sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins, to live a perfect life, and to raise to provide us freedom from that, that way of life and salvation. And if we would just come and place our faith and hope and trust him and say, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I submit my life to you. We too can receive that salvation. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And, and Paul is saying here, listen, we need to put this on display, and every person needs to showcase this in their life, that man, the gospel is true in me. Now, now the question naturally comes is this, how, how do we put the gospel on display? Well, look at what Paul does, and I think it's a great framework for us, if you will, when it comes to church. Look at verse 12 through 14. He starts by saying this, I thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord, who strengthened me, because Consider me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love there in Christ Jesus. He starts with this. How do we display the gospel? He starts with saying, look at me. Look, look at me. You want to see the gospel? Look, look at me. Look at my life and what God has done. Look, look at what God has done in me. And he starts in verse 12 by saying, look out where I am now. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he has strengthened me. He considered me faithful. He pointed me to ministry. Look at where I am now. If you were to take the inverse of that, what, what, what can we imply that was going on before? He said he strengthened me. He said, at one time I felt weak. But God came and gave me strength I didn't have before. He said he considered me faithful. What was that? I remember at one time I felt untrustworthy. I felt like no one could ever use me and I felt unfaithful. But yet God, what, considered me faithful with the message. Wait, wait what else did he say? He said God appointed me. At one time in my life I felt useless. But God made me useful. I don't think there's a single person in this room at some point in life can't identify with those things. Where man, I felt worthless, incapable, unloving, I mean, I felt terrible. And, and look, look at me now. God said the opposite of my life. He goes on to say, look, look where I am. He said, not even more so, look, look where I was. Not just look at me now, but look at my past. Look at the next part. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man. Bla blasphemer, what's he talking about? He's saying, I publicly and verbally deny Jesus. He went around and made his platform that Jesus was worthless. This is not the Messiah. Literally trying to kill the church. Not, not figuratively, literally trying to kill the church. That was his mission in life. As, as a passionate Jewish person, he believed that part of his zeal to, to bring about the true Messiah was to wipe out anybody that stood in the way. Any Jews who were not being faithful, you were slowing down the true Messiah from coming. And so for him, his passion, he thought he was being faithful to God. And he did his own thing. He said, I was a persecutor. I physically assaulted the church. He said, I was arrogant. I looked down on the church and thought it was beneath me and worthless. But look at how bad I was. And, and look, at, look at where I am now. And he continues on and says, and look at how I got here. Don't, don't miss the narrative of the story. He says, but. I, I say this all the time, man. Buts are great in scripture. 
Get your little kid in you, and anytime you see butt, just giggle, okay? And stop and say, what's going on here? He's transitioning to a thought and trying to get you to catch something here. I was all these terrible things, but, tee-hee-hee-hee, now let's see what he says here. But what? But, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. I received mercy. Look at how I got here. And now, real quick, let me just say, he's not justifying what he did because he didn't understand. It's easy to look at it and go, well, well God showed him grace because he, he didn't understand what he's doing. He, he knew better than anybody else. He'd heard the gospel message and he rejected it. But he's saying even despite what he did, God still showed mercy. And not just that, he says, but I received mercy and I received grace. Do you, do you know the difference between those two words? They're, they're not the same. They're, they're distinctly different. Mer- mercy is this. When you don't receive the punishment you rightfully deserve. That's mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is this. It's when you receive a gift or a favor that you don't rightfully deserve. Let, let me illustrate like this. When I was 16, I had a dream car I wanted to get. And I know I've shared about this before. It was a 66 Mustang. And my parents surprised me and got me a 66 Mustang that was cool sounding but needed a lot of work. We spent a lot of time under the hood fixing it and working out. It became a hobby car with me and my dad. And I can tell you right now, it's a hobby he didn't want, but it was a, it was a labor of love. And one of the problems with this car, it was a, a, a standard transmission. It had three in the floor. Uh, so you had reverse, first, second, third. Uh, had a straight six engine for all you gearheads, which means it would put putt uphill and go fast downhill. That's about it. It was not much of going at all. My first speeding ticket, I was proud of. I didn't think I could get a speeding ticket in this car. My car had transmission issues. And I remember we just got the transmission fixed, and me and my dad spent many weeks under the hood getting the transmission going. And our first time taking it, we get it. My dad takes it around the neighborhood. I'm sitting next to him, and he tells me, he says, all right, hey, now listen, I want you to know, going from first to second, it kind of sticks. Be careful right there. Me, being the wise young teenage kid I am, said, yeah, yeah, I got this. Leave me alone. And so my first time in the car with it, we get there. I go from first put it up, thinking it would slide in neutral and over, slammed it straight into reverse and dropped my transmission. We put around the neighborhood, go, a whole mile around the neighborhood, both of us realizing what's going on. We don't say a word, park the car, walk inside, both of their heads down, I go to my room and lay down, he goes to the couch and sits down, and we don't say a word for two hours, not a single word. About two hours later, he comes in and says, hey, let's put in an automatic transmission. How does that sound? And we did. We changed it to an automatic transmission. (coughs) Now, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Mercy. My, My dad had every right to scold me for my arrogance in that situation. He had every right to come and say, you know what? I told you. You, you didn't listen in your arrogance? Guess, guess what? You're, you're, you're going to ride the bus the rest of your high school career. This is, mercy is he did not berate me and beat me down. He did not hold against me my wrongdoing. That's mercy. Grace was my dad came in the room and said, let's put an automatic transmission, and he paid for it and put it in. And he spent the time working on it. And he didn't let that relationship be broken. That's the difference between mercy and grace. God not only forgives us of our sins, but but he calls us to son and daughter. He makes us children of God. He gives us every blessing.
blessing that belonged to Jesus Christ, and he gives it to us. And that's what Paul's saying. I received it. And not only did I receive it, how did I receive it? He says this, uh, but verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. That overflow, that, that word, you might think of this cup, and it's kind of coming over the edge, like, oh, look, God's filling up. The, the visual image of overflowing is me taking this cup and standing under Niagara Falls as it comes and fills my cup. So much that I can't, I can't even take in all that God is doing. And that's what God pours out to us in grace and mercy. The, the reality is this, listen, you, you will never fully comprehend how bad your sin is and how far that separates you from God. And you will never understand completely how much God has given you that you don't rightfully deserve. It is like standing under Niagara Falls and God just showering you so much that you can't even begin to take it in. And Paul's like, look at me. And don't miss the benefactor. Who is it? Who is it because? He says, that are in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus did. But Paul says, look at me. Let me, let me, let me summarize it like this. To, to give hope for healing to people we have to quit hiding our scars. We have to start showing people our former life and ourselves and say, look at what God did. And listen, I get we're ashamed of our past and no one takes pride in that. But if we don't allow God, people to see what God has done in us, and we don't, they'll never have belief that God can heal them too. I'll never forget being at this church. We had a young kid who found out he had thyroid cancer. He was absolutely terrified of it. As, as, as imagine anybody would be. And I remember as a church began to pray for him and talk to him, one, one of the ladies came into his church and, and, and went to our church, went and looked at him and says, hey, you're, you're going to be all right. And he looks at her, and she had a scarf around her neck. She, she untied her scarf and showed a scar on her neck and said, I had thyroid cancer too, and I'm okay. And you'll be okay too. And, and, and can I tell you, the, the, literally see the kid's chest pop up because suddenly, like, listen, if, if, this, if you can get through this, so can I. And the reality is in church, we, we, we hide our scars because we're so ashamed of them or because we think we, that it's a no-no we shouldn't talk about. And, and people have no hope for their healing. The hope for healing is found in our scars. My question to you is this. Are you willing to display the gospel in your life? Are you willing to tell people, listen, I, you wouldn't talk about a terrible person. Look at my past. That's why I try to constantly share about my mistakes. I'm not proud of them. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm embarrassed by it every time I talk about it. But you know what? God has brought me out of those addictions and things I struggle with time. And, and man, I know there's other people in the room, they're dealing with the same thing, thinking God can never forgive me. And I want to stay in here and go, God can, because he forgave me. So Paul starts with saying, look at me. He continues on in verse 15, 16. And then after he says, look at me, he, he begins to change their focus. He says, now look at us. Look, look at us. And I think he's talking about the church as a whole in here. <coughs> He says this, he says this, saying is, is, uh, is trustworthy and, dis and deserving of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Well, what saying is he talking? He's talking about a message that clearly is known in the church. He starts by saying, look at the message the church speaks. He says the saying is trustworthy. It, apparently it's a common held truth early in the church. You have to understand, when Paul wrote this letter, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have it. They couldn't pick it up and say, turn to page 673, sorry for the microprint and the papyrus, do the best you can to follow what's going on here. They didn't have that. They, they had the witness and testimony of the early church, the people who actually saw and spread verbally what was going on. And so when he says a trustworthy, this is the gospel truth of the text. They have what people are saying. And he's like, listen to what people say and what's the message they say. 
He says, Jesus came, what, into the world to save sinners. He's saying you need to understand the message the church preaches because this is the most important thing to us. The message of the cross is important. And the message of the church was clear. Jesus came to save us for sinners. He didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for the perfect. He came for the sinners, the broken, the beat down. But my question is this. Is our gospel message clear? Do people hear the truth? What's going on? And so he's like, look at us. Look at the message of the church. Look, look at the proof in the church. Look at the second part. He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And guess what? I am the worst of them. This is a powerful statement when you begin to read this letter as a whole. If you go back to verse 9 through 10, Paul gives a list of all the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says the ungodly, the sinful, the lawless, the rebellious, the murderers, and goes through all this list. Paul, Paul clearly is connecting right here two things. You'd see this list in verse 9 and 10 and go, that's some terrible people. Golly, man, those people are, are doomed. And Paul's like, you see that list? I'm worse than all those cats right there. All those people, man, I, I, I'm the bottom of the rung. I'm the worst of the worst. Now, I heard that, and initially I go, come on, Paul. I mean, you, you can't really believe that, right? I mean, like someone who kills their mom and dad, you're saying you're worse than them? Like, really, you really believe that? Is that just a, a, a pleasantry you're saying out loud? But begin to think about who Paul was. Paul was public enemy number one of the church, literally going and trying to kill the church. If Paul were alive today, pre-salvation, he'd be walking in this tour, arresting all of this, and killing me right now. That would be who Paul would be, public enemy number one. But Paul wasn't indifferent to Jesus. He tried to destroy him. Listen, just, just listen to Acts, the early recording of the church. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. As, as one of the early first martyrs, a guy named Stephen, they take the, one of the early deacons of the church out because he's presenting the gospel, and they begin to kill him. And listen to what it says. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witness, listen to this, laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you don't know church history, Saul is Paul before he was saved. So Saul, Saul's the one that everyone's given credit whose idea this was. Who's their leader? It's Saul. You keep going in chapter 8, verse 1 in, in Acts, says this, Saul agreed with putting him to death, and on that day severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. It says, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. And listen to this, verse 3. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. It doesn't stop there. You go to chapter 9, verse 1 and 3. I mean, just, he's all over making a mess. It says, now Saul was still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him uh, to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men who or women who belonged to the way or Christianity, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And he, as he traveled, he was nearing Damascus, and a light of heaven suddenly flashed around him. And you have right after that his conversion when he came to Christ. Right before he gets saved, he's getting letters to go and kill the church. These are executional. This is Paul we're talking about. And what is Paul saying? Listen, you want to look at the worst of the worst? Look at me. He even says, going back to 1 Timothy, well, why did God do this? He says, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example of those who believe in him and have eternal life. 
He's like, I'm proof. If God can save me, trust me, God can save anybody. And listen, how often in church do we do that? How often do we say, listen, look, look at, you want to see some messed up people? Come to my church. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, we've got a whole slew of them. You'll fit right in. And guess what? It's okay. They're, they're all redeemed people. And we want you to be a part. If you've got a messed up life, join the club. I'll, I'll never forget my first church I served at, uh, New Beginnings Church in Shawnee. I was, I was fresh out of high school, young kid and stuff like that. Uh, we're scrambling to find uh, sponsors to come help. And my pastor came to me and says, hey, uh, there, there's a guy named Jared. I, I want you to consider him to be a sponsor. First time I met Jared, dude was tatted up all over. One rough looking. I don't have any of his tattoos, just real quick. Just, but, but he was a rough looking dude. Began to talk to him. He, he's been out of prison for three months now for having a meth lab. Spent five years in prison for a meth lab he had. Had his child taken away from everything. And my pastor says, listen, I know this is kind of unstandard stuff. He goes, but I want you to God's doing something in this guy. And so he came and served in our student ministry. And, and, and kids were getting saved left and right. And this guy, man, he, he was an evangelist heart, bringing people to the Lord left and right. And here's why. You know why? Because kids would see him and like, man, if God can save him, man, he can save me. We began to put his story on display, let him talk and share. We had kids, man, when I was there, we had the highest gang-related activity of kids coming in. And they began to see hope, not, not in my story, in his story, because they realized, man, God can save messed up people. And we need this. And I think nowadays how scared we would be to put people in those positions. Now, let me just say this. Listen, when it comes to ministries, we're, we're going to be prudent and wise when it comes to uh, taking care of stuff. But I want to say this. I, I don't care what your past is. You have a place here and a place to serve, and we're going to help you find a place because we believe God's going to use you in a story to do what's going on. Don't ever disqualify yourself. And that's the church we should be displaying, not being ashamed of those things and going, let's, let's hide them behind the, the ficus tree over here because we don't want people. No, we need to display and say, man, look at what God is doing in these people. My question is this, are we willing to display the gospel in our church? But Paul, Paul's moving. And he ends with verse 17 is this. He, he goes to look at God. He, he ends with worship. But many scholars believe this, this, is, this is literally a worship song. Paul, Paul can't hold it in anymore. He's so excited, he's getting giddy, and like he just breaks out in amazing grace. I can't stop, and he just starts singing. Like he cannot hold it in. This is a common doxology, a common form of worship they would have sang in the church, and he just begins worshiping God. Why, why does he do this real quick? Why does he follow this order? Can, can I tell you, a lot of people when they come, they're, they're intimidated by God. They're intimidated by church. They're overwhelmed. They think there's no way God's too big. God can never love me. Those people are too judgmental. They would never accept me. And so what does Paul do? Pa Paul breaks it off and says, hey, stop, stop. Look at me. Look at me. Look at what God's done. Okay, now, now look at us. Look at us. Hey, look, look, you're in good company. And guess what? Guess what? Who did this? God. He's breaking down their focus and the barriers that are causing them to be scared to come. And he's doing this. He's building them up. And he says, look at God. He says, look at our praise and worship. Look at who he prays. He says, now to the king eternal. What does that mean? It's the king of all ages, ages, the sovereign one. His plans and purpose will forever rule. He calls him the immortal God. Why does he use that? His, his plans will not fade or die with him. They will last forever. He calls him the invisible God. 
What does that mean? There are still things of aspects of God that have yet to be revealed. We haven't seen the fullest. What we're getting now is just a small taste of what's to come. There is so much more. The only God, his plan is the only plan. He ends with worship. When I sing, I worship a God that saved me. I don't brag about how awesome I am and how great we are. Man, like, I, I would not be here if it were not for God. Don't, don't miss the importance of Paul's end. But Paul doesn't end with self-praise. He doesn't end with, look at me, look at how awesome I am, look at how gifted I am as a preacher, look at all I've done. He doesn't do that. And Paul doesn't end with self-deprecation. Look at how terrible I am, man. I'm such an awful person. Man, look at all this sort of stuff. He doesn't do that, was he? He ends with worship because he can't contain any longer how awesome God is for what he's done. That's why he ends bursting out in worship. Let me just say this, listen. What does our worship reflect? When we come and sing praises, do people see people who have been forever changed by a loving God that's given so much for them. We're pouring out, man, God, I'm not fit to sing to you. But, but listen, we're, hey, we're Baptists, right? We get the golf clap worship. Good job, God. Now listen, I'm not judging you on whether you raise your hands or not, but I, I do think there's an onus. If you scream in a football game, you better be screaming in worship to God. He deserves our praise. He deserves our honor. And people should see something different about our worship because God has been here. But Paul's making sure when the foundations of the church, you guard the gospel, but you celebrate the gospel. People aspire to what you celebrate. When they see that we celebrate God, when we see we put on display what God has done in our life, people want that and come to that. There's hope, there's healing, there's belief that your scars can be healed. We must put the gospel on display. So my last question is this, what, what is it we put on display for the world to see? Today after church, um, you, we're going to have a meeting to talk about a mission trip to Salt Lake City. About an opportunity for you to go serve and go do sort of stuff. Can I tell you, it was so amazing. We went back in August, myself, Chris, and Josiah went to visit. We got to walk around Salt Lake City, see the temple. It, it's impressive. I mean, that's an understatement. It, it is absolutely impressive of what I see there. The money being spent, the architecture, the faithfulness of people. But can I tell you, the whole time, every single conversation we had with Mormons in there, guess what? They kept coming back to, the Mormons were putting on display their buildings, they're putting on display their wealth, and their numbers as proof that God exists. Literally, I said, well, how else could we have done this if God were not a part of it? How could we have not built this if God didn't do this? How, how could we have done that? How could we have this much money in tithes and offerings if God weren't part? How could we have this much? How, how would that be possible if God weren't part of it? And yet when I see all throughout Scripture, not once does Paul go, check out this house right here we built for church. Is this not awesome? Look at all the people we got coming. Have you seen the offering this Sunday, guys? Man, tell, tell me God's not a part of it. No, what does Paul say? Look at me. Look, look at how bad I was. And look at what God did. Forget the building, like God, God can do this for you too. I, I've questioned times whether I should share my story because I'm like, man, I don't want to offend someone, I don't want to make people uncomfortable. But listen, me and my wife, when we talked about me coming out of my addiction to looking at stuff I shouldn't have, like, listen, I, I'm never going to stop talking about it because God has delivered me. And the moment I stop is the moment Satan's got a stronghold in my life again, potentially. And don't think we're not embarrassed by it. 
Don't think I haven't brought shame. Don't think I haven't brought shame on my wife because of it. But the, but the beauty is, listen, God's healed me. And God's delivered me. And God can do the same for you. Look, look at my scars. Look at the plank in my eye. And God, God can take that little speck of yours. We have to be a church that does this. And, and it means, listen, you, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be real. You, you have to not be perfect. And that's okay. Christ on the cross, you don't have to be. So quit trying to pretend to be. Are we going to be that church? And for those of you who are saved, I, I'm, I'm praying to God, I'm challenging you to go and tell someone some faults you're embarrassed with. Because listen, God's going to use that. I'm telling you because I've seen it in my life time and time again. I still this day, every year, get called from former students in my student ministry who I shared this story with. And years later, now as they're married and begin a family alone, saying, I remember you telling me that story. I'm struggling with the same thing. Can you walk me through how to get out of this? Don't be scared to share. To, to the rest of you, to some of you who came today as a guest and you don't know how you got here today, <laughs> thank you for coming. You, you ever felt like God couldn't love you? You ever felt like you could never live up? You feel like you could never be used? Listen, that, that's not what this book says. And if you believe something otherwise or we've given, or someone in your life's given off a different message, I'm sorry, they, they lied. That's, that's not what this book says. This book says that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins. There is no sin, there is no shame in your life that God can't take away and fix. And, and God will take that thing that you're scared of, that you hide in the closet, like, man, if anybody ever saw this or learned this about me, they'd never look at me the same, and we'll put you someday, and we'll deliver you from that someday, where you can stand on a platform and go, hey, listen, look what God did in me. And there's hope. And here's a second, we're going to have elders available. You, you can come, and we would love nothing more to pray with you. We are flawed people that worships a worship a faithful and holy God. And he will forgive you. But, but no, no one can make this decision for you. No one can take you out of that lifestyle for you. You have to want it. You have to choose. And so what are you going to do today? And so I'm going to ask you to do this. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes and just allow God to speak to you for a second on whatever's laid in your life. If what I said in your heart, if I, what I said suddenly stirs in you and you suddenly found hope that you didn't have before and think there's a chance for you, listen, don't leave today without talking to someone about it. We have Pete, one of our elders. We have JD, one of our elders. We have uh, leaders that will be in the back that would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to be redeemed and how you can be redeemed too. But, but you've got to respond. To, to the rest of my church, I'm begging you, please start displaying your flaws. Please start allowing people to see your scars so that they can believe there's hope for them too. Let this be a church known for imperfect people that worships a perfect God. And it might not even be imperfections or mistakes. It might be God has just delivered you from heartache, from hard times, whatever it meant. You need to share it. Be faithful with your story. Father God, I love you so much. I pray I pray somebody in the sound of my voice was convicted to action. I pray everybody in this church knows that we are not perfect. And I pray we're never ashamed of the gospel work in our life and we always are willing to share it. And I pray if there's anybody in the sound of my voice that suddenly God just felt a glimpse of hope, please give them the confidence to come talk to one of us today. And don't let them leave here without uh, just finding the freedom they need. Thank you so much for the gospel. 
Thank you so much for the good news that we can be saved from our sins. We can be, have meaning in our life, and it's all because of you. And I pray we'd find that. Call us to response right now, God. We love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of just reflection, response. We're going to worship. And so I'm going to ask if you could stand. And as you stand, if you need to talk to someone, like I said, we got one of our elders, J.D., up here. we got Pete up here. Amazing men that love the Lord with nothing more than walk through it. we got Steve Riley in the back back there. And we got others that would be available. Uh, but you come and respond for how you need to. But we'll be available for you.